You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Joe Nickel is back with a new book, Tracking the Man Beasts. It's all about monsters that look like us. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford and Dr. Karen Stolzno, we talk about the science of monsters. Today, we have a great interview with Joe, and we're just going to hop right in after the intro. You're listening to Monster Talk, brought to you by Skeptic Magazine. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. So today we're talking with a paranormal investigator of the scientific ilk, Joe Nickel, about his book, Tracking the Man Beast, Sasquatch, Vampires, Zombies, and More. Joe, I have a lot of different questions about this. I, I'm very impressed by the book. It's a really nice survey of all kinds of monsters. From this book, you pulled from just about every kind of humanoid monster to form it. If there's a thread that weaves these monsters together, I would assume it's that they're anthropic. Yes, the... Um idea was that while the different monsters in this book, and it is an, a sort of an eclectic survey, they're often categorized into different genres. So you, you'll see a book on vampires, or maybe vampires, werewolves, and zombies sort of together. Uh, or, a, or a different book might be on um, you know extraterrestrial beings and so forth. Or you might have something on Bigfoot and Friends. But I dared to just rope them all together, as disparate as they are, on the theme that they are more or less like us. And the interesting thing for me is that they serve as sort of metaphors for us. They're sort of us, but not us. For me, uh, Bigfoot is sort of our stupid cousin from the past, um, an endangered species to be sure. So endangered, I joke, that he may not actually exist. <laughs> and on the other hand, uh, the E.T. The e. is a futuristic version of us, you know, the little big-eyed, big-headed humanoid, kind of a futuristic version of us in which our bodies have become vestigial and, and the brain is so large. And that being is, is futuristic and has come back from the future to the planet Earth, where again, um, he has messages for us about the environment. And other types of beings are also 
you know, symbolic of us and like us, for example, werewolves and vampires are us with an attitude. And, and we use those. You know, we, we talk about people like Jeffrey Dahmer um, in terms of being sort of a Jekyll Hyde and being, you know, man beasts. And so I, I think what I tried to do with the book was uh, combine both the in the field work and the cultural aspect into into one volume. I hope it works. So, Joe, why do you think it is that so many of our monsters look like us? Why are they made in our own image? Well, I think I don't I don't know about you, Karen, but I I think uh, most of us human beings think we're the most special thing on the planet. I just think that human beings uh, have always tended to regard themselves as the center of the universe, rather literally in times past, and even today when we know better. We're still sort of the center of our world, and we things revolve around us. If you look at the, the Old Testament and you look at how God is presented, once again, this this idea, we, we describe God in our image. You know, the Bible says God made man in, in his image, but in fact it's the opposite. And so God breathed, uh, he said, he saw, and so forth uh, in, in ways that are, you know, human-like. And I think that that that's the case with so many of our deities, so many of our mythological beings. They're like us because that's what we most respond to. Even not only not only in, in a good way, but also you know our demons are like us. Uh, you know that's uh, funny that, that the uh, that sort of subconscious egocentrism from a species perspective. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed that in in uh, one of my it's not really a monster topic, but the global consciousness project, uh, which is looking to see if there's evidence of precognition and the ability to uh, affect random number generators over time, and and their their hypothesis is that humans are, are psychically affecting these random number generators. And I actually wrote some of the people and asked them, well, how do you, how do you uh, exclude psychic dogs or psychic cats from, from being the things that are affected? How do we know it's humans if we can't detect psychic powers? <laughs> and uh, so far, no one's responded to my inquiries. But <laughs> You're so devious. <laughs> well, speaking of the, the paranormal, what do you, what's your take on the paranormal explanations for these things? As you know, whether it's uh, Sasquatch or vampires or zombies, uh, there's always somebody that will come up and say, yes, but this is a paranormal super, supernatural entity. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, that's, that's for them to, to approve, I suppose. I'm not, not exactly sure I'm understanding your question. Well, for, for example, uh, John Eric Beckyard uh, believed uh, that Bigfoot is, a, is an interdimensional entity. And, of course, in, in your book, you're, you don't treat them as paranormal interdimensional entities, but instead as flesh and blood, blood creatures. Yes, yes, I do. Um, you know, I think that's just by and large a fallback position that people have. You know, if you can uh, sell them as, as physical and real good, and if you can't, well, then they're, they're shapeshifters and they're able to, you know, disappear quickly or or to have a touch on some of that, but I, d- I don't take it very seriously or, or spend much time on it. This book is really a survey of, of some of the kinds of man-beasts that, that interest us, and it's, it's of course, not an encyclopedia. It uh, doesn't have the kind of depth that one could have if you pick one creature and you did it to death, so to speak. But mm-hmm. it's certainly an attempt to, to look at the main 
features of the main ones, and uh, I hope it holds together. Well, and also it seems to tie very much uh, in a sort of biographical way to the things you have a personal uh, history with looking into. Yes, and uh, let me let me make it clear right up front. <laughs> when I started doing the book, I decided that you know uh, that those those entities which I had already been on the track of in Australia or somewhere and had material on were going to get preferential treatment. Uh, so that I would have um, material for the book. And uh, I did make use. I mean, I saw that I could do this book because I had done so many investigations of so many man beasts and had so much material from just diverse sources like my carnival work and travels around the world here and there and so forth. And and I put them in. I, I tried to not leave out any really central ones. I don't believe that I did, but but somebody can you know, could easily say, oh, well, you didn't mention this creature, you didn't mention that. Just as when I did my book, Secrets of the Sideshows, I expected, I haven't heard much of this, but I'm expecting that some people, you know, would say, read the book and say, oh, well, I know a giant you didn't mention. Well, it wasn't uh, It wasn't an encyclopedia. It wasn't a catalog of all giants. It was a, a book about, uh, you know, the secrets of the sideshows. And tracking the man beast is sort of the same way. I'm not, you know, trying to uh, collect all of them or say everything about all of them that I'm trying to present an eclectic group and find a common thread and then track the main themes of them you know see if they actually exist out in the out in the world out in the bush but at the same time to see what are they do they exist and ultimately why do we care well Joe you just mentioned your carnival work and some of the monsters you cover include devil baby gaffs so these monsters look laughably fake to a seasoned eye, yet they're still part of a curio shop and, and sideshows. So what drives that carny mentality, and uh, do you think such constructs have much of a future? Well, you know, the carnival sideshows were just a great place for people to have some experience in the days before computers and television, really, before they really took off, in the, in the earlier days. The average person didn't have a chance to see exotic things. Now you can access them in a in a touch and find out maybe more about them than you wanted to know. But at at a time they traveled to small towns. I remember as a boy when you know the carnival would come to town. It was really quite a quite an event. And for anyone who's curious, that is, who's let me define that really alive, um, it, it was a place to see the most wonderful, exotic, and strange things that you could only imagine otherwise. And, and of course, the carnies <laughs> catered to that, and some of the stuff wasn't really real, but it was all, as you know, as Bobby Reynolds or Ward Hall would say, the old showman that Ben and I uh, spent some quality time with, uh, would, would say it was all really, really good. might not be really real, but it was, <laughs> it was really good. It, it, it's got to be really good if it's not really real, right? <laughs> That's right. There you go. Well, yeah, we, we traveled around to uh, to uh, some uh, some of the big sideshows when they're you know they're almost gone now, uh, but at, at the time Ben and I went out, this was a rare opportunity I think to see the last of these sort of dinosaurs, these showmen like Bobby Reynolds, who were exhibiting things that, and some of this is in the book, the Fiji mermaids and the fake jackalopes and so forth, many of them witty and funny, wolf boys and so forth, 
And, and of course, the infamous uh, Sasquatch, um, whose banner, if I remember correctly, said it was safely frozen in ice. <laughs> and uh, that's true. And it was, you know, it was from the apparently from the, the distant realm where some Sasquatches live, uh, the, the, the region of, of latex. <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned some of the stories and, and seeing some of the the, the gas as, as a boy. When you were growing up as a boy, were there any particular monsters that fascinated you? Maybe local or regional ones that really caught your attention? Well, the ones under the bed, um, of course, were were prim- <laughs> primarily of interest. But I, you know, I I don't know that I was particularly uh, involved in, in ghosts and monsters as a, as a boy. I was sort of a rationalist at a fairly early age, but, but I, do remember, I do remember being quite terrified as a very little boy having seen a, a Superman movie that, about the mole people, hmm. and they were very much like the day's extraterrestrials. They, only they lived underground, but they came up and they had these big heads and little bodies, very, very much like today's extraterrestrials and it was just it was just very creepy and I, I can remember being somewhat afraid of of those after the movie you know thinking how terrifying they were but um, my father particularly was uh, was a very skeptical fellow he was a at one time was a science teacher and was an amateur magician and introduced me to the world of magic and we you know we constantly were you know, I was being tied up and, and uh, learning to escape, and, and we were doing magic tricks. And, and uh, he brought me out on stage at an amateur show once, and I did my first magic trick on, on stage um, under those conditions. So I've, I've sort of always been around magic and science and, you know, had chemistry sets and fingerprint kits and stuff from, from a pretty early age. Uh, but But sure, these things were all around me, and I... I saw them as maybe more as popular culture than I did as something I would actually take seriously. When I went out in the woods, and I spent, I lived in, you know, in eastern Kentucky in, in, a, in an innocent time when you could just, we thought nothing of picking up a rifle and taking grandfather's boat and going down the Licking River, um, you know, with a knapsack and staying a few days, uh, just roaming, roaming wild. And, uh, I mean, I worried about about real wild creatures, but I never gave a thought to uh, any any uh, mythological creatures, really. I noticed that you treated mermaids uh, pretty well in this book, or at least you covered them very well. I think with the things like Disney's Little Mermaid and the upcoming Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which apparently includes mermaids, uh, I expect to see a lot more media coverage or maybe a new History Channel tie-in. Uh, one of the accounts you gave talked about a, a creature that had blue streaks on its head that looked like hair, uh, and it sounded like they were describing some kind of sea creature. What, what do you think sailors were seeing when they reported these kind of animals? Well, I think they were seeing real, um, oftentimes, I think they were seeing real creatures in the water, and they were they were seeing something just like today. Uh, we would see maybe a, a sea monster uh, off the off the um, coast of Vancouver, uh, Vancouver Island, an area called Kebra Bay, and we would see, you know, the Kebrasaur sea monster. And we now have more than one person has seen this sea monster, this long-necked 
undulating serpentine creature, only to realize that it was actually um, otters, sea otters. And so they're, people are not just hallucinating. They're not just uh, you know using their imagination, but they're actually misperceiving something that's real that's in the water. And so I think that's true with some of the mermaids and some of the other sightings. It's, it's often hard to identify precisely what they saw. But one of the things that I've tried to do is to... Take people who I think are, have not created a hoax, and this is, of course, we don't always know whether somebody's being honest with us or not. Have no inst- I, I'm not psychic, and I don't know whether somebody's always telling me the truth or not. But if an account might be true, if people seem to have had some kind of real encounter, such as with the Flatwoods Monster or Mothman, and I'm persuaded in both those cases that they were not hoaxes and people did have an encounter, then it's kind of a tricky thing, and I think we need to rely on that quality that I, my father tried to instill in me above just about everything else other than possibly integrity, but was he, he spoke of this all the time, and it's one thing that I associate with, with his teaching, and I hope I got, was good judgment, because you can have someone who's, who's brilliant, but has no good judgment. And you know, a lot of cranks are that way. And I've tried to approach, using good judgment, approach these descriptions that people give when they describe a creature that they apparently saw, and try to sort out how much of what they've described, because they've clearly misperceived, but how much of their description might actually be accurate, and then how much do we think isn't. So, for example, if you look at, at Mothman, and people described, you know, this this creature with no appreciable neck or hardly a head, but these bicycle reflector, crimson, shining eyes, big wings, and so forth. That is almost an exact description of a type of owl called a barred owl. I mean, I don't make this up, and I'd be willing to sort of offer a reward if somebody can find a better look-alike for Mothman than a barred owl. I think they'd have trouble. And my trump card is sort of the fact that Mothman was seen in a in the Mexenic Wildlife Preserve, a, a bird sanctuary that has barred owls in it. So I'm not making any kind of stretch. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, people clearly, because I have to listen to jokes from a lot of believers on the other side, they say, well, Nichols postulating, you know, a six or seven foot owl and so forth. Ha, ha, ha. Well, no, I'm just saying that, as I said to one of those people who was ribbing me over this gigantic owl, I'm saying, well, I'm I'm glad my opponent agrees with me that of all the creatures on the planet, Mothman looks most like a barred owl. And so we're faced with this question, which is more likely that there is a hitherto unknown species of giant owl or an extraterrestrial creature who looks like that on the one hand, or that people just were misperceiving the height, just mistaken about the height, because it was dark and they were they were frightened and they saw it briefly and which is which is more likely and and I but but I I have oftentimes gone back and with some precision tried to say they said they used this phrase they used that they mentioned this detail and oftentimes the persons description's not just entirely wrong. It's, you know, some of the features are really pretty good, 
so then the question um, is which which details are they are they getting correct and which ones not and that's that's where the good judgment comes in mm -hmm. and I hope I've used it in the, in the case uh, Blake that you mentioned that uh, Whitburn he may have seen a hair seal it's so tricky but you're you're absolutely right about um I guess the critical factor is getting some of these stories uh, the original stories and you cover this in the book before the stories uh, metamorphosize over time. Yes, exactly. Because uh, to go back to Mothman for a moment, uh, and I was just down in uh, in Point Pleasant again for a TV shoot on Mothman, um, getting to know all the folks in the town, you know, um, the cryptozoologist. But um, Mothman's a really interesting case, and I touch on this in the book, uh, how Linda Scarberry, who sadly just died just before I got there, I had hoped to meet her, We'd hoped to have her on the show, but she I knew she was in the hospital and very, very ill, so I knew that was probably not going to be the case, and she did die just before we, we got there. But Linda Scarberry was the one of the original eyewitnesses to Mothman, and she's, she specifically said, I mean, we, we have her account that she wrote out at the time that Mothman, that she saw no arm. She specifically said that, and yet, decades later, she could, quote-unquote, remember the big muscular arms of Mothman. And this is, this is just very, very instructive to realize that people do this. I mean, I think everybody does. I think, you know, it's not just believers, it's everybody does it, that we remember things that are not part of our original perceptions that we've, we too, I mean, Linda must have seen all kinds of Mothman art and watched it evolve and so forth, and I think that affected her own original sighting. But of course, in nature, nature never produces creatures with both wings and arms, though mythology does, many, many examples. And was interesting to me that that image which is evolving and if you look at Mothman in its sculpture in downtown Point Pleasant uh, it is it is quite different. It no longer looks much like a barred owl. It looks like a creature has undergone an iconographic metamorphosis into a creature that looks, you know, its head looks sort of chupacabra-ish it has sort of alien-esque eyes and touches maybe a lizard creature or something. It's, it's a mixed bag, but it has arms and wings. Mm -hmm. And is, you know, more man-like in some ways than the original. Yeah, it has a head now. It has clearly has a head, yeah. yes. Instead of just these eyes sort of silhouetted at the top of the body, which is how when, you know, when an owl raises its wings and you see those shining eyes, um, I've had the opportunity, by the way, you know, one of the things I try to do as a skeptical cryptozoologist is to to go out whenever I can and, and interact with critters that, you know, might be of interest to me. So I was animal trainer for a day at Aquarium Niagara, and I've gone out on, you know, boat trips to see, you know, whales or what have you, and I was able to a few years ago, not not too many, uh, to go on 
down at Letchworth State Park to go on what was called an owl prowl. And this particular naturalist there actually can call barred owls in their native tongue. Hmm. And it was a it was it was just incredible. I wish I had 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 him on tape because he just wonderful. And we went out and you know my wife and I went on this trek with a handful of other people out where he knew there were barred owls at this time of year and exactly where they nested and everything. And we went out. And it was just great fun to get there, and he started calling, and the, the, you know, they're very territorial, so they were just very offended that some other barred owl had come into their territory, and you could hear the kind of the anger, and so forth. it was really funny, because he was so good. He appeared to me to be fooling the, the actual barred owls. He was so good at, at imitating their sound. And we were able to get right under the tree and use the spotlight and see those shining bicycle reflector eyes. And, and they're, you know, it's, that was one of the clues. Ben may remember this. I first wrote a piece because, you know, the the Mothman movie was coming out and, and I needed to say something. And I wrote a piece saying, oh, it, it has all the makings of a Mothman appears to be just, you know, the the barn owl again. I remember later that. I had yeah later I had time to reflect and this is what you do in science you you just admit when you're wrong uh, and I, I jumped the gun a bit and um, I mean some of my friends said oh Barnell Bardell you know six of one half a dozen the other what do you you know why even care and, and but no it's, it's, attention to detail is extremely important in our work and so as as I went to Point Pleasant and I was able to spend some time there. Um, actually inadvertently getting locked in the compound at uh, the TNT area, it's called, where Mothman was first seen. Spooky. Yeah, and I, 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 I don't want to talk about that because it's a great embarrassment to me. <laughs> but but uh, I spent some quality time there, and I got onto this idea of the eye shine and did a lot more research. And uh, that crimson eye shine pretty much differentiates between Barnell and the barred owl, and I'm and the barred owl also has the advantage of being a little bigger. Otherwise, I know they they look pretty much alike, and, and a lot of people, if you've seen one owl, you've seen them all. But but I I really believe that what they saw was a barred owl, and I put my money on it. I I, I think you're right. I remember when you did that Mothman case, and I I was just amazed at what a good job you did in terms of you know looking at all the you know all the different things, all the different you know things that might be in the eye shine, and and I mean to my mind. Uh, that's that's one and, of my and favorite thank you cases and thank book. you for and thank you for overlooking the fact that I got called it wrong the first time. I but, didn't notice uh, anything about that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know, the, the, yeah. one of the hallmarks of science versus uh, just, you know, belief is that we correct when we get good evidence, right? So Yes, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm prepared tomorrow to make another correction if, if I get some new data. You know, look, this, um, anybody who goes out in the field or anybody who does paranormal investigation knows that you're often given some small amount of data, and then you're supposed to decide as if you're psychic or something, well, what was it, Mr. Skeptic? And, how, you know, well, you, you venture something. You venture something. And, and uh, then, then later, oh, well, but two more people saw it. We didn't tell you that. And now they are—they're claiming this, and so forth. Well, would have been nice if you'd had those facts, but you just right. proceed—you proceed just the same way as a. And I've had the privilege in my life of doing a little bit of homicide investigation, um, working with a police department that—that that, you know would occasionally, as they said, borrow my brain because I love doing this sort of thing, and I got to work on some uh, very few, but really, really interesting cases and you realize what a homicide detective does i mean it, you walk in and you look at the crime scene and you have some evidence you you form a sort of first impression now you shouldn't go off and hold a press conference and tell them very much we all know that a little bit later when some of the tests are in you may have quite a different view of exactly Absolutely. what happened Absolutely. and then and and it may look though at about that point it may look like the husband is pretty guilty culprit and and you're ready to you know make the case against him and then a few more tests maybe come in and actually he's completely cleared and somebody else looks good for it and so on i mean you that kind of thing certainly happens in real forensic science and it and it's just the same thing that happens in the paranormal and um you know what? What we do, um, I hope, is I try. I go back and I try to silently correct errors that uh, revered colleagues have made. Call as little attention to their errors and give cut them a little slack, as I hope people will do for me. Uh, you recently spent some time with Lauren Coleman, um, and yeah. uh, I, was, I was wondering what you thought about his. His Mothman curse, as you know, there's a there's a oh, Mothman <laughs> curse that he uh, that he posits. What's your what's your thoughts on that? Yes, the curse of Mothman. I I, I had some fun with that. Um, someday, I suppose I, I I ought to publish what I did. I wrote a piece. Lauren, forgive me. Um, I wrote, I wrote a, a response to the Mothman curse, and 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 I called it something like the Coleman curse. And, and I, I pretended to track. Well, let me let me quit uh, quit confessing. Let me just play this straight. So so I seriously tracked uh, Lauren Coleman, and don't you know that he left one city, moved to another, and in the first city there had been all kinds of automobile accidents, mysterious and unexplained deaths, and all manner of stuff, and he moves to another city, and don't you know that there there are incredible auto accidents, fires devastation, <laughs> unexplained deaths and stuff in that city. And so I don't know that we ought to be talking about any curse of Mothman, but we ought to be talking for sure, boys and girls, about the Lauren Coleman curse. And I wrote, I wrote this piece up, 
uh, meant to be in fun. Lauren's, Lauren's the kind of guy who can take a joke. Uh, but I just never did anything with it. But uh, but I, or I wrote it. It's somewhere around that I could use sometime. But um, I had a nice uh, nice talk with Lauren about – we didn't so much talk about specifics of Mothman or whatever. We were doing TV shoot, and he had to go do his thing, and I had to go do mine, and we weren't around when the other was talking. We didn't really compare notes on that so much. But I might say that – and Karen knows this because we talked about this once on, on a different podcast uh, – how I've begun to – some years ago, I began to – change the way I use the term cryptozoologist. I used, in some of my earlier writings, I would refer to cryptozoologist oftentimes in quotation marks. And I did the same thing with ufologist and, you know, some of the other ologists out there. Demonologist. <laughs> yes, demonologist and vampirologist is a subcategory of that. And seriologist, the crop circle thing and so forth. And I was doing, I was being a little disparaging, saying, well, you know, all these self-styled people come up. There's no real field of study. They're just putting ologists on top of some field of study. And in, and in, you can make a long list of these. There's nothing there, I would say. You know, there, there are UFOs, but there aren't real flying saucers. There aren't real, there aren't real Bigfoot creatures. There aren't real, you know, whatever. They're studying sort of something that doesn't so much exist. But I've I've changed my thinking in more recent years and begun to to call myself those things, and not just not just so that I get more personas. No, no, not not just to do that. Not not at all. I know what you're thinking, but in fact, because I realized, and I think you guys would would agree with me at least in part of this, that I I really don't like debunkers, and I really don't like dismissers, people who are just trying to, you know, say, oh, humbug, I wouldn't walk across the street to look at a haunted house or something. There's nothing there anyway, and why waste my time, and this is all silly, and those people were probably drunk or lying or hoaxing or something, and I just think we shouldn't do that. And so I'm I'm often feeling more akin to someone like Lauren Coleman who I might earnestly disagree with. I mean, I might really, really disagree with someone on a particular mm -hmm. issue quite profoundly, but I'm saying at least they're out in the field or they're out honestly trying to gather something. And they may be, may be wrong-headed about it. Yes, yes. And, of course, they think the same of me. But I joked to Lauren. I said, Lauren, I, I will say, you know, that you're the best of a bad lot. And he started laughing. And I said, but I know, but wouldn't you say the same of me? And aren't we really, if you look at sort of like there's there's a fence, and on one camp are the, you know, the, the skeptics and disbelievers, on the other the sort of believers and so forth, that way out in the, we're sort of on either side of a fence maybe, but he doesn't like, Lauren doesn't like to be called a believer any more than I like to be called a debunker. And in some ways, maybe you and I are closer to the fence and closer to each other and having a better conversation sometimes than we are with the people who are behind us but way over, you know, far in the far afield. Anyway, what do you think of that? Well, I, I think as a noted breakfast seriologist, uh, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. I'll, yeah, that's, that, you can use that. I, you know, I, so I sometimes what I say is that I'm a skeptical ufologist or a skeptical 
demonologist because look if the implication used to be when you said you were a demonologist maybe that that you believed in demons hmm. but i don't think you have to to do that at all i think all just means one who studies and if i'm studying say vampires i don't have to believe they exist to talk about the history of vampires cultural the literary history, I mean, there are many aspects, all worthy of some scholarly discussion. And mm-hmm. if you do that and say very clearly what your evidence is and where your position is, and maybe you do want to sometimes say you're a skeptical one just, just to make that pretty clear, I, I believe that I am each of those things. I have I have whole books on some of these topics. And, you know, I... I mean, as ufologist, I was asked to contribute. There's a profile of me in the Encyclopedia of Extraterrestrial Encounters. So I, I, what was I doing there? Well, I was being a ufologist, a skeptical one to be sure, but that was the subject matter, and I've done a lot of, a lot of work, and I'm doing some more right now in that field. I guess the common thread, then, besides these monsters being anthropic, is that um, they're all composed of stories. And, and I think originally... Before the rise of uh, the media, folklore was the the carrier mechanism for these ideas. But with the media, it, it seems like it gives these monsters a sort of gravity that they, they they might not have had before. Do you think the media has a legitimate role as a storyteller, or would you prefer that they would just stick to known facts? Oh, well, that's um, that's a big uh, big subject. All these topics that I cover in the, in the Mandy's are fair enough for television shows and i've i've been on many of the shows um you know i had a three-year run with um animal planet for one of its series granted it not not a great series but i did the best i could uh providing some skepticism occasionally they don't let me edit these shows of course or it'd be a whole different whole different ball game entirely did a lot of shows for Monster Quest, did some for National Geographic and so forth, all in the field of, of monsters. And I think they're legitimate topics. What I, the, the thing that just bothers me is that I believe that they should be treated fairly and objectively. So, yes, you can just, I mean, pick your subject, Mothman. That's a fair subject. That's an interesting thing that happened what what's what's going on there and what we ought to do is look at it by all means let's look at it but the trouble is the the tv people are quite willing hiding behind the word entertainment to just leave any kind of factual stuff on the cutting room floor and to insinuate and use innuendo and to bring on these you know dubious people who you know we see their name and then underneath it says researcher and you don't know who they are except, yeah, they probably went to the public library near their home and poured over some crank books, and that's why they're they're on now. But there ought to be some sense of responsibility in the fact that TV is a powerful teaching medium and that people all the time, people come up to me and say, well, what about this? And they're talking about something they've seen on a cable TV show. How do you explain that? And I usually, because I don't have an hour to give them the, you know, the whole scoop, I just say sometimes, you know, can I just make a suggestion? They say, what? I say, you know, don't get your facts from, from a television show. 
Well, Joe, I just wanted a quick follow up in the uh, in the last issue of Skeptical Inquirer, you had a an interesting piece on on your experiences with the uh, University Press of Kentucky uh, and sort of similar thing where oh yeah you know, there, there there's a you know there there's a, a dichotomy between trying to be entertaining and uh, trying to sell some stuff. So it's uh, so some books. I think the topic was ghost books. It was a very good piece. Well, thank you, and I'm, I'm hoping skeptics will support me on that and, and realize this was very painful for me. I mean, I had a very good arrangement with the University Press of Kentucky, and they, they, you know, going back to the original uh, head of the press, the earlier head of the press, who I love dearly, Kenneth Cherry, and we had a great relationship, and he retired, and another guy came in, and uh, we didn't have as great a relationship, but I, you know, so what, I just didn't deal with him, really. I dealt with editors, and, and I had a long-running relationship with that press. I published many of my books, but I wonder whether, you know, the head of the press particularly actually read any of them because, you know, suddenly here they are publishing this really silly, silly book on on ghost hunting and and don't seem to know the first thing about the issues involved and, and just... I mean, it, I said to them, if they wanted to publish a book on on ghosts, by all means, you could do an anthology of, you know, some scary campfire tales. You could do some an anthology of Kentucky ghost legends and so forth. That would be okay. Do it with a touch of real folklore to make it scholarly, and, and I would have no objection to that. So, but I, I don't know that they understood a thing I said to them. And I wrote a lengthy report showing how that this was ghost hunting nonsense, and these, this was hardly folklore except in the most stretch-a-point way where you can – I mean, sometimes folklorists now say that even your personal experiences kind of – if you relate those as kind of a you know modern folklore. But, I mean, true folklore, which is the way they tried to build this book, it, it's just not much there – and they're promoting, uh, you know, hauntings and and the, the whole, you know, equipment-based ghost hunting approach and everything. Just too silly for words, and I was treated very shabbily. Uh, to my shock, I I really thought somebody might listen to me, and and I was I was trying to say, look, this is a serious ethical issue here, and then I would get this response, oh, are you questioning my ethics? And so forth, and I, I just have to say, yeah, well, okay, if the shoe fits, wear it, buddy. Uh, because I, so I, I never got a, re- I wrote a, a report at their request in detail, and they did not give me the courtesy of a reply, and that was the last I heard about a book project. We were talking about doing Tracking the Man Beast, and it just, I heard silence, which was deafening. So I went back to my earlier publisher, Prometheus Books, and and did tracking the man beast, and uh, I think a handsome, handsome book it is. It is indeed. In the text of your book, you talk about uh, how many of the man beast legends are quite similar, and in your alien iconography drawing, which we talked about in your previous visit, we we discussed how that the uh, evolution of aliens has sort of uh, blended towards homogeneity. Uh, in modern sightings, but there used to be yes. uh, there used to be uh, cyclops and triclops and giants and, and very weird things, and now everything's starting to look like little gray aliens with big heads. Yeah. Uh, so, yep. do you th- w- why do you think uh, these uh, legends are sort of blending towards this homogenous view 
What, what do you think is driving that? Is that a, a, an effect of the media? Or, or, in other words, is it a feedback cycle? Or, or, or what, what's going on there, do you think? Well, as I, as I suggested earlier, I think that as some of these cases get prominence, if you look at the alien timeline, and the reason that I drew the alien timeline, I have little cartoon figures, as you know, of all the different types of aliens. Just a, it's just a smorgasbord of some types, but the, the main ones are, are the uh, Betty and Barney Hill case in 1961, and you see the little big-headed humanoid appearing. Um, there's quite an interesting pictorial variety. So it's, you know, you could draw a blob or a robotic figure, an insectoid, and so forth. I didn't do that for the hairy man beast because they're they're already too much alike. They're all hairy man beast type. So there's not as much diversity. And I didn't think that I could show the range as easily pictorially. So I just did it verbally. Um, so that's that's why there's a chart of one and really not the other. But but in either case, I think that just as Roger Patterson, as I was suggesting earlier, uh, suggested what Bigfoot really looks like, and everybody who saw that that film, you know, if that's real, then then Bigfoot is not this or this or this or this, but it's going to look something like like this, and that that was so famous and so ubiquitous in being shown that 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 had a powerful effect on other people's interpretations if you don't have that if you don't have a sort of you know powerful governing image then people will be all over the place in what they see and what they imagine and the same with alien timeline that was all over the place in terms of the kind of extraterrestrial creatures that people encountered and a lot of that is the power of the imagination it's all over the place, but once you get the little big-eyed, big-headed humanoid with the Betty and Barney Hill case, which ended up as a made-for-TV movie, right? So that that was a big deal when that show appeared, and I think that that got a lot more attention, I can tell you, than Blobs did or or robotic figures. As you know, this, these this was this was a big deal. And that figure comes back uh, with the Betty Andreessen abduction and and uh, Travis Walton. And eventually, you know, the toy store becomes full of this little big-eyed, big-headed humanoid, which I would argue, as a sort of corollary of tracking the man-beast's uh, central hypothesis, that that the reason they that the little big-eyed, big-headed humanoid became the prototype is because it's the one that looked like us the most and looked like a futuristic version of us. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I really I really think that we need to look at Bigfoot and put it as as a symbol of the past. It's pre-human, pre-evolutionary human. And ET is futuristic because we have this notion that you know, our bodies will be vestigial and our brains will be so big. No, that's not exactly how evolutionary biology works, but that's a sort of popular sense. So the alien looks like a futuristic version of us, just as Bigfoot does not. And these are powerful myths in which we're now, that helps frame us, one behind us and one in front of us, kind of framing us. Here we are on this fragile blue planet, really out in the edge of nowhere, you know, not the center of anything, 
just this lonely, fragile planet. And and the mythology is powerful. We're watching these myths develop right before our eyes. This is not the, you know, we're not, as we often do with mythology, we're looking back at the ancient Romans and Greeks and we think, oh, that's just myths and, you know. No, we're watching in our time, watching them develop in our lifetimes, these powerful myths involving human beings. And they have powerful messages about our endangered planet and our, you know, our imperiled planet. And those messages are are pretty good uh, for us to pay attention to, even though the beings, I believe, are not not actually here. Well, Joe, just finally, uh, when you were on the show last de- discussing the Mothman, uh, the boys forgot to ask you. We always like to ask our guests, "What's your favorite monster?" Oh, my favorite monster! I mm-hmm. it's mm, that's a tough choice. Certainly a particular favorite is, at least for this moment, if you ask me again next year, I may forget having said this and pick another one. (laughs) Uh, A lot of it has to do with what I've been working on and so forth. But uh, I've always been partial to the Flatwoods monster because, for me, it was really uh, revelatory. It was one of those old cases. I had no idea what people saw. There were people suggesting this must be a hoax. I mean... You don't really see a flying saucer land in the woods, and then you you run up there and see see one of the extraterrestrials. People must have just made that up. That's a hoax. Well, it wasn't. They saw a real meteor and, and thought it landed on the hill. And it was a comedy of errors. And and these kids and this beautician and a dog all went up there, and and they were you know getting themselves all worked up about the, the you know what they might find, and then this creature whose shining eyes they saw and it's sort of a heart-shaped face and it's as it came at them with a high-pitched hissing sound and quote terrible claws it just scared them to death and I was able to put that together and I believe argue pretty decisively that that was a barn owl and so I'm always kind of affectionate because that was one case where I really began to do this thing, which I try to do later with a number of other creatures, to say, okay, let's go back in time, let's look at the earliest account, and let's see if we can figure out what really happened and what's the most likely thing they saw allowing for some discrepancies and and seeing how maybe they were quite accurate in some details, which is the truth with the Flatwoods monster. So it, it has a, just a special interest. And even today I could go to Flatwoods and there's a big big home on the hill there where, uh, you know, I've gotten to know some of the residents. I can go up there and knock on the door and invite myself in for a sandwich. Um, <laughs> there you, you go. Can't say that, you can't say that everywhere. <laughs> I've actually done that. So, I mean, it, you know, stop <laughs> off sometimes when I'm passing through and, and have a sandwich. We'll, we'll be sure to ask you again in case your favorite monster changes. Yes, yes, Keep uh, keep tracking that because it, you know, it might change tomorrow. Um, a lot of it has to do with uh, what you're working on and uh, yeah, what you're yeah. reflecting on. And uh, exactly. Right now, I'm uh, I'm turned. Some of my attention is turning to to extraterrestrials again, and I'm I'm working on some big cases and big stuff, and um, hope to have something of of interest. Well, keep us surprised. 
Yeah, I want to see what you got. It'd be great. I could I could tell you guys about it now, but then I'd have to kill you before you put it on the air. But, I, yeah, I, I got enough trouble with the Men in Black already. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, they I think they're tax people actually, but that's neither here nor there. Oh, don't get me started there. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's great as always. Well, thanks again for Thank you, your, keep up your good work. See ya. Good to talk to you. Bye bye. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Skeptical Inquirer's Ben Radford and Skeptical Paranormal Investigator Dr. Kieran Stolzno, we look at the science behind monsters. Monster Talk is produced with the help of Skeptic Magazine. When you buy Skeptic Magazine, you help support our show. Skeptic Magazine will not stay crunchy in milk, but I still enjoy it as a healthy part of my breakfast. Today, you heard an interview with author and investigator Joe Nickel. A link to his new book, Tracking the Man Beasts, will be in our show notes at monstertalk.org. If you enjoy our show, you might also consider clicking the donate button on our website. We'll say your name. Money from donations will be used to buy research materials and offset the price of conventions we attend. If you don't want to spend any money but want to help the show, you might also give us a review at iTunes. You can comment on this and previous shows at our forums at skeptic.com or on our Facebook fan page. Our theme music was by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for your valuable time. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. I, I was thinking <laughs> it takes a lot of balls to participate in Gansfield. <laughs> <laughs> As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.